Welcome back to the Hemingway List podcast for Book 10, Chapter 39. What did you think of Tolstoy's depiction of some of the men changing their minds about war during the heat of the moment? Did you find it believable? And what overarching comment do you think Tolstoy was making about war during this chapter? Last chapter of Book 10, I'm actually excited to start Book 11, and I think Rye Bread Egg is as well. Rye Bread said... Honestly, I'm glad I'm done with this part. I didn't really like the war aspect too much. Crossing my fingers for more Natasha and Pierre. Um, yeah, well, yeah, I'm happy to move back to society, but it's interesting that to note that the French are now sort of moving into society. They're moving into Moscow. They're, uh, well, they're about to take it for themselves. Uh, but maybe it won't go quite to plan for the French. Have to read on. If you know your history, you know what happened anyway. Um, it was another good example of just summing up the way Kutuzov waits to strike. He just waits and he watches and then he strikes. He doesn't do anything until he needs to do something, until it's absolutely an opportune moment to do it. And then he turned around his army and fought that battle at Borodino. And yes, they got their asses whooped, but not really. Actually, they lost, but they didn't get their asses whooped. They, they lost, but they still gave the French an ass whooping. That's what they did. Book 11 is entitled 1812, and chapter 1 goes like this. Absolute continuity of motion is not comprehensible to the human mind. Laws of motion of any kind become comprehensible to man only when he examines arbitrarily selected elements of that motion. But at the same time, a large proportion of human error comes from the arbitrary division of continuous motion into discontinuous elements. There is a well-known so-called sophism of the ancients consisting in this, that Achilles could never catch up with a tortoise he was following, in spite of the fact that he travelled ten times as fast as the tortoise. By the time Achilles has covered the distance that separated him from the tortoise, the tortoise has covered one-tenth of that distance ahead of him. When Achilles has covered that tenth, the tortoise has covered another one-hundredth, and so on forever. This problem seemed to the ancients insoluble. The absurd answer that Achilles could never overtake the tortoise resulted from this, that motion was arbitrarily divided into discontinuous elements, whereas the motion of both Achilles and of the tortoise was continuous. By adopting smaller and smaller elements of motion, we only approach a solution of the problem but never reach it, only when we have admitted the conception of the infinitely small and the resulting geometrical progression with a common ratio of one-tenth, and have found the sum of this progression to infinity, do we reach a solution of the problem. A modern branch of mathematics, have, having achieved the art of dealing with the infinitely small, can now yield solutions in other more complex problems of motion, which used to appear used to appear insoluble. The modern branch of mathematics, known to the ancients, when dealing with problems of, oh, sorry, unknown to the ancients. Let me start again. The modern branch of math. Let me start again. The modern branch of mathematics, unknown to the ancients, when dealing with problems of motion, admits the conception of the infinitely small and so conforms to the chief condition of motion, absolute continuity, and thereby corrects its 
corrects the inevitable error which the human mind cannot avoid when it deals with the separate elements of motion instead of examining continuous motion. In seeking the laws of historical movement, just the same thing happens. The movement of humanity arises as it does from innumerable arbitrary human wills is continuous. To understand the laws of this continuous movement is the aim of history, but to arrive at these laws, resulting from the sum of all those human wills, man's mind postulates arbitrary and disconnected units. The first method of history is to take an arbitrarily selected series of continuous events and examine it apart from others, though there is and can be no beginning to any event, for one event always flows uninterruptedly from another. The second method is to consider the actions of some one man, a king or a commander, as equivalent to the sum of many individual wills, whereas the sum of individual wills is never expressed by the activity of a single historic personage. Historical science, in its endeavour to draw nearer to truth, continually takes smaller and smaller units of examination, but however small the unit it takes, we feel that to take any unit disconnected from others or to assume a beginning of any phenomenon, or to say that we will of many men, sorry, say that the will of many men is expressed by the actions of any one historic personage, is in itself false. It needs no critical exertion to reduce utterly to dust any deductions drawn from history. It is merely necessary to select some larger or smaller unit as the subject of observation, as criticism has every right to do so. Seeing that whatever unit history observes must always be arbitrarily selected. Only by taking infinitesimally small units for observation, the differential of history that is the individual tendencies of men, and attaining to the art of integrating them, that is finding the sum of these infinitesimals, can we hope to arrive at the laws of history. The first 15 years of the 19th century in Europe present an extraordinary movement of millions of people. Men leave their customary pursuits, hasten from one side of Europe to the other, plunder and slaughter one another, triumph, and are plunged in despair, and for some years the whole course of life is altered and presents an intensive movement which first increases and then slackens. What was the cause of this movement? By what laws was it governed? asks the mind of man. The historians replying to this question lay before us the sayings and doings of a few dozen men in a building in the city of Paris, calling these sayings and doings the revolution. Then they give a detailed biography of Napoleon and of certain people favourable or hostile to him, tell of the influence some of these people had on others and say that is why the, this movement took place and those are its laws. But the mind of man not only refuses to believe this explanation but plainly says that this method of explanation is fallacious because it, in it a weaker phenomenon is taken as the cause of a stronger. The sum of human wills produced the revolution and Napoleon, and only the sum of those wills first tolerated and then destroyed them. But every time there have been consequences, there have been conquerors. Every time there has been a revolution in any state, there have been great men, says history. And indeed, human reason replies, every time conquerors appear, there have been wars, but this does not prove that the conquerors caused the wars and... 
that it is possible to find the laws of a war in the personal activity of a single man. Whenever I look at my watch and its hands point to ten, I hear the bells of the neighbouring church, but because the bells begin to ring when the hands of the clock reach ten, I have no right to assume that the movement of the bells is caused by the position of the hands of the watch. Whenever I see the movement of a locomotive, I hear the whistle and see the valves opening and the wheels turning, but I have no right to conclude that the whistling and the turning of wheels are the cause of the movement of the engine. The peasants say that a cold wind blows in late spring because the oaks are budding, and really every spring cold winds do blow when the oak is budding, but though I do not know what causes the cold winds to blow when the oak buds unfold, unfold, I cannot agree with the peasants that the unfolding of the oak buds is the cause of the cold wind, for the force of the wind is beyond the influence of the buds. I see only a coincidence of occurrences such as happens with all the phenomena of life, and I see that however much and however carefully I observe the hands of the watch and the valves and the wheels of the engine and the oak, I shall not discover the cause of the bells ringing, the engine moving, or the winds of spring. To that I must entirely change my point of view and study the laws of the movement of steam, of the bells, and of the wind. History must do the same, and attempts in this direction have already been made. To study the laws of history, we must completely change the subject of our observation, must leave aside kings, ministers, and generals, and study the common, infinitesimally small elements by which the masses are moved. No one can say in how far it is possible for man to advance in this way toward an understanding of the laws of history, but it is evident that only along that path does the possibility of discovering the laws of history lie, and that as yet not a millionth part as much mental effort has been applied in this direction by historians as has been devoted to describing the actions of various kings, commanders, and ministers, and propounding the historian's own reflections concerning these actions. Okie dokie. There we go. That's chapter one of book 11. Ponderings of history. Yet again. Get used to it, people. There's a lot of ponderings of history coming up in this book. Kind of ends when we get to the uh, the, the prologues with a lot of... Is that what it's called? Epilogue, sorry. The epilogues. A lot of ponderings of history. Alright, guys. Thanks for listening. I'll see you tomorrow.